I always say that Brazil is super exciting because when you land here, you start to experience friction that maybe you take for granted in your home country. But if you have the right lens on, that friction translates to opportunity. Being able to open up a bank account for your company or for yourself through an app, it's an innovation. Back then, you'd have to go and sit at a branch and hope that the bank manager could figure it out in two to three hours. But chances are that you would have to come back to the branch because you were missing some document. Hello, and welcome to Brazil is not for beginners. Today, our guest is Ruben Guerrero, the CEO of Webull Latin America, a global stock trading platform, and the former co-founder and CEO of SproutFi, a digital broker allowing Brazilians to invest in the US market. Ruben has been building businesses in Brazil for over 15 years, and most importantly, at least for me personally, Ruben is known for making the best buffalo wings in Sao Paulo. Ruben, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Isaac. Happy to be here. And you're uh, far too generous on uh, the wings. You and I both participated in Latitude, the accelerator here, and bonded over our uh, roots in upstate New York and our love of wings. So uh, I, I have to give credit where credit is due, especially during the football season. It's, it's great to be your friend and know that I can count on this. Absolutely. You know, it's not every day that you meet someone from upstate New York in Brazil. So when, uh, when, when I saw you at Latitude and you mentioned that you hailed from Albany, I got super excited. But it goes to show, you know, how, how much Brazil has really grown in the last few years in terms of just becoming an international destination for entrepreneurs and builders, right? Um, I've been living here now for four years. This is my, my second time in Brazil. And what, what really excites me about living here is just how many people from different walks of life um, are converging down here. Yeah, I have to agree completely. This is also my second time in Brazil. I'm here now for about two and a half years. And my first time was 2013. And I was living in Rio and Brazil was getting ready for the Olympics and the World Cup. And so there were a bunch of foreigners in town, but very much focused on that and very much here temporarily. And I think that dynamic has changed. And you're seeing a lot more people that are committed to being here and that are building for the long term. And that's really what I want to talk to you about. I think, you know, the idea of this podcast is about working and, and building in Brazil. There is the, the famous saying, as, as I always say, and as we always hear anybody that does any work in Brazil, that it's, it's not for beginners. And so we, we want to dive into that. But to start, you mentioned, you know, your, your, our connection over, over upstate New York. So I'd love to hear, you know, if you could share a little bit more about your background, how you came to Brazil the first time, how you came the second time, what brought you down here, what kept you coming down here, and how that got you to, to SproutFi and the work that you do now, not just with investing, but also, you know, one of the things I didn't mention at the beginning is the mentorship that you provide to a lot of other startups working with founders, both foreigners and, and locals. So kind of what brought you to that, what attracted you to that, and a little bit more about your trajectory. Sure. So I should start by saying that I'm a little bit older, right? So <laughs> I can cover a lot of ground, but um, I'll, I'll give a brief summary. Um, you know, I was uh, born and raised for part of my childhood in, in the Dominican Republic. My parents came to the U.S. in the 80s as immigrants. And as a child growing up, first in the Dominican Republic and then in New York, I didn't understand what entrepreneurship was, but my parents were entrepreneurs. They owned their own business. And I was at a young age working with them. So I was always really excited about the thought of owning my own business. They didn't necessarily understand what kind of work <laughs> went into it. 
But in any case, uh, I, I'm very fortunate that my parents taught us the, the value of hard work from a, a very early age. Um, grew up in the Bronx, New York, not the easiest of upbringings. <laughs> so when I had the opportunity to leave the Bronx, I decided that I wanted to go far away enough where I would be forced to fend for myself, but not too far where I would lose a connection to home. And so that's how I ended up in upstate New York at Rensselaer. Fantastic school, not much of a social life, but great for, for learning how to work hard. It has its spots. Yeah, you learn to appreciate the, the simple things in life. Chicken wings, Absolutely. dollar beers. <laughs> After college, um, I was fortunate to end up joining Goldman Sachs in their analyst program. And I spent three years there. And towards the end of my, my tenure there, I realized that I, I wasn't necessarily built for that kind of environment. And again, it was sort of a, you know, not necessarily understanding what I wanted to do, but just understanding that I wanted to be in finance. I just, I perhaps wanted to be in a smaller environment where I could um, feel that my contributions were actually impacting something in the business. And so I took a few months off, ended up um, afterwards at E-Trade Financial, one of the, the original online retail brokers in the U.S. And that was a phenomenal experience in terms of learning how to build product um, at that time, E-Trade was extremely innovative, a reference in the market. And so it was uh, exciting times to, to be there. After E-Trade, I ended up working at this company called Orc. Before the term uh, fintech was coined, <laughs> Orc was a financial services company that was focused on providing solutions to high-frequency traders, market makers, options traders, and whatnot. And so we were, at that time, building very cutting-edge technology. And as a matter of fact, if you've ever read the book uh, Flash Boys, um, we were very much powering a lot of the characters that were mentioned in the, in the book. And so that was exciting. I got to meet a lot of great um, folks in the industry. And that's actually the opportunity that opened the doors for me to start traveling to Brazil, doing dev down here, and eventually to move. Um, so I started traveling down here in 2008 and ended up making the leap um, and moving down to Brazil in 2010. Those were the glory days of the FX being under two to one, I think, if I, if I recall correctly. I remember my first trip down was in 2007, and Brazil was shockingly expensive at the time. So <laughs> Yeah, it, it was nutty. But it was also a very different time, right? Um, in 2010, there was a flood of, uh, quote-unquote, gringos or expats many of them working for banks or, or companies that were expanding to Brazil due to the boom in, in commodities, right? And so it was a very different community that we see today. It was people that were here for two to three years. So a startup for me at that point was, hey, here's this company that's established in the US and, and throughout the world. And I'm coming as the first employee of that company to Brazil to set up an operation. But really it was more of, you know, it wasn't a true startup per se, but more and more I see folks that are really coming down here to build. Yeah, I came as a consultant for one of the big consulting companies. And I think that's how most people came down to Brazil. It was exciting. It was still booming. And I don't know how much people were looking to build for the long term. I don't know that people saw the opportunity within the ecosystem to build for a long time, at least from a startup perspective. I think people saw the size of the market. But it was still very much commodity-based. People talked about the bricks and that potential. But back to your story. So you, you came down in 2010. How long did you stay for? 
what you know sent you back to the U.S. and then what brought you back again and with this idea of, of building your own business that time? Yeah, so I stayed in Brazil for three years. Um, when, when I came down with Orc, I built the local operations. And after a while, it became sort of um, just a babysitting job, right? But more operational and it just wasn't as exciting. So another opportunity came to, to join um, a late stage startup in the cybersecurity space, which was completely different for me. Right, it's good. I've always been in financial services, but but this was exciting and it gave me the opportunity to explore and, and learn in a different vertical. And so I was brought on to, to also start the operations for that company in Brazil, which we did very quickly. And then I, it became my task to do the same thing all throughout Latin America. And so at the end of 2013, I ended up leaving because my, let's say my job in, in Brazil was done mission accomplished. Um, I went back to New York and from New York, I continued to run Latin America for, for Centrify. Um, that was the name of the company back then. And um, while in New York, I remained with Centrify for a couple of years, eventually ended up maturing the operations to a point where I just felt like um, I needed to go build somewhere else. Um, left the industry altogether, started to do some real estate projects in, in the U.S., and that then opened the, the door to having conversations with different folks about, you know, what I would want to do next. And in one of those conversations with a good friend of mine, he suggested that I think about coming back to Brazil because there was a lot of exciting stuff happening here. And so the seed was planted and I came back in August of 2019 to visit that same friend. I landed on Friday and by Sunday, I returned home with a job in Brazil. <laughs> I ended up joining this uh, B-stage company that was the first one to sort of um, dabble in the salary on demand vertical, right? Which is novel and new in, in Brazil, because as you know, Brazilians as a whole, um, I, I, I want to say this without sort of making a blanket statement, but I think that we face a lot of challenges around financial education, right? And so what you see here is that because people don't necessarily know how to efficiently manage their money or how to efficiently budget, they end up getting in these debt loops, right? They, they start taking money, um, overextending themselves on credit. And we have this system in Brazil where you can buy now, pay later. I like to joke that um, in the U.S. and other parts where buy now, pay later has become a thing. Brazil was actually innovating in that area long ago. <laughs> Yeah, it, it surprised me when I went to the States and people were doing it there. And then when I came back to Brazil and some of those companies came to Brazil to try to teach Brazilians how to buy now, pay later because they do it so much. But I think your comment about the financial education is right. And part of that is historic, right? So Brazil had tremendous inflation in the 80s and 90s um, before it stabilized itself. And saving habits are not very strong. And so really interesting, some of the companies that were doing the salary advance solutions uh, that you mentioned there. Yeah, it was an exciting time, um, but it was also challenging because not only are you building a brand new product and trying to find market product fit, you know, you're evangelizing um, a completely different way of, of managing your finances. And we had to sell to, to enterprises, right? We had to sell to the big employers and so on the one hand, you, you're trying to make the case for why they should care about 
the financial well-being of their employees, right? How much, uh, you know, how much headspace it takes in the mind of your workers and how unproductive they become. Right? But you're also trying to convince the, the employees themselves that this is a much better way than of, of managing their finances than taking a loan through a check especial, which is basically loan sharking. And, and people get stuck in that vicious loop, right? And so that's what we were trying to change. Um, and I think that we, may, we were maybe a little too early, right? It's, uh, we had the right solution, but we were just too early. And so, you know, the company ended up um, being sold. You know, now you see that there are a lot more incumbents and startups that are offering salary on demand. And they are finding success, right? But I think that the time is right today. Yeah, the market has has changed in terms of some of the financial education. And, and I think that's a really great segue also to get into how you started thinking about SproutFi. And um, I'm curious how you went from one struggle to offer financial education to another struggle to offer financial education and trying to convince people to, to invest in the U.S. and hold dollars. So um, it seems to be a, a theme that you like, this idea of financial education. Well, you know, um, we didn't necessarily arrive at the idea for SproutFi uh, on day one. What ended up happening was that I, I was toying around with, with a few ideas. And during the pandemic, uh, being stuck at home with a lot of free time, um, I had the benefit of just being able to ideate and, and shoot the shit with different folks about things that could work. Um, problems that small businesses were having, especially when, you know, when lockdown went into effect, right? And you could see that a lot of small businesses that didn't necessarily have a, a digital presence, how much they were struggling. And so I initially started working on, um, you know, I want to say it was sort of like a marketing solution to allow small brick and mortar business owners to come online and, and to be able to offer their services and products in a way that um that would allow them to survive through through the lockdown but what ended up happening was that as passionate as i was about solving that problem there is such a thing as founder product fit right and and so when i was having when i was having to go out there and actually pitch vcs they would love my co-founder and i they they loved our experience they they loved us as a team but they didn't love the idea and they didn't necessarily understand why we were the guys that were going to build that product and why we were going to win. And time and time again, they kept coming back to us saying, like, you guys have a lot of experience in the fintech space. This is probably something that you should really think about. Go, go and build a fintech and then let's talk. <laughs> and my co-founder, having come out of Nubank um, and having been at another crypto startup in Singapore, he was eager to build something other than fintech. And so we sort of brushed it off. <laughs> Everybody's building fintech. We don't want to build fintech. We want to be different. But lo and behold, you know, as time went on, we just kind of came to the, the conclusion on our own that we weren't really pa as passionate as we thought we were about building mar a marketing solution. And we really wasn't our space. And selling to SMBs in, in Brazil is really hard, right? So even if we built something, it wasn't clear that we we were going to have a big enough market. Um, and so we decided to, at that point, sort of take a step back and to really talk about the things that we were passionate about. And one of the things that we both kept coming back to was that with my 
financial services um, experience and his banking experience, we really wanted to figure out how do we help the most number of people, not just in Brazil, but in Latin America. And we came across the investment space. And you know, Isaac, that um, historically banks and brokerages in Brazil um, haven't made it very easy for, for the mass population to actually access the best investment products. Um, they typically are not very transparent on fees and sort of return profiles. And some of the largest players out there are making a lot of money. They're making a lot of money, but they're making a lot of money on the backs of their customers because they're not necessarily recommending the best products to their customers. They're making, they're recommending the products that have the highest fees for them. And so that really drove us to, to think about, well, what can we do? And also thinking about the fact that it's not enough to provide people with access to the best products. You also have to provide financial education and you have to provide them with support. And so that's really where the seed for, for Sprout um, was planted. And we started by deciding that, look, we want to offer access to the best products in the best market. So let's, let's enable the everyday Brazilian to be able to open up an investment account in the U.S. Let's make it so that it's accessible. Um, and, and by that, you know, with very low minimum so that people can start investing with at least $1. Um, the mystifying of the, the thought that investing is only for the wealthy and the well-to-do. Um, but to also provide education and to provide support in, 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 in terms of a community. So we built this app that provided the access with very low minimums and also had a community component where people could share ideas, share learnings, share what they were excited about, right? And so that was the premise behind Sprout Fight. And at that time, you know, in 20, 2021, you know that the, the meme stock main, uh, mania was uh, at all times high. So people were excited. Um, the investment community was throwing money at that thesis left and right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we went from um, a scenario where it was very hard for us to raise uh, venture capital to a scenario where we were turning people down because we, we, we had taken more than, than we could spend at, at that time. Right? So, yeah, that, yeah that, that's, that's how uh, Sprout Fight came about. That's amazing. And I think a lot of founders will probably understand that journey of, of moving. There's a lot there to unpack around uh, founder market fit as well. And whether you should listen to VCs when they tell you that or really should chase your passion. But one of the things that you mentioned and that I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on is, you know, you came down as a country manager originally in 2010 and built the company here in Brazil and then did that for another company and then came back in 2019, working for a Series B company and then founded your own company. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how working in Brazil changed over that time. And so Brazil is still really hard to do things in. Uh, but, you know, we talk even with some of the, the founders that we know that have been building since 2015, 2017, and how impossible it was for them to create a corporate bank account for them to open their company. So what are some of the challenges that you had to deal with initially that have now maybe been solved and are easier for companies coming to Brazil? And what are some of the challenges that you still see that there's still a lot of friction in terms of starting a business and opening a business in Brazil? God, um, so much has changed, right? And, and as I think back on 
2009, 2010. Look, the, the process of opening a company in Brazil is still not very straightforward. But and, and that's today. Back then, it was even tougher. Right. Um, it, it, it took a lot of time, um, you know, it, 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 and it cost a lot of money. And that was, you know, I was fortunate that when I came down, I had the support of a corporate group that had experience opening entities all across the world. Um, but Brazil was still challenging. And we, we ended up having to hire an army of lawyers and consultants to even just help us figure out how do we import the software that we're going to sell in the country, right? Um, cloud infrastructure was at its infancy, probably even non-existent, right? Um, and, and, and I remember having to build a data center um, two servers at a time because I would have to fly to New York, buy these $25,000 HP blades and bring them as a check-in luggage and pay the taxes at import at the Amazing. airport. And Amazing. it wasn't so much that you couldn't buy them in, in, in Brazil. I mean, because you could, HP is, has been in Brazil forever, but you would order it here and it would take six to eight months to arrive and it would cost you three times what you would pay in the US. So it was easier for me to build a data center by going to the US and coming down. And that was a, a weekend affair for a number of months, right? And so that was quite interesting. Uh, you know, there were there were a lot of things like that that we had to do. And and fast forward, you know that you can uh, today. There's so much infrastructure available from, you know, having startups that are catering to other startups that are getting started, right? Helping them get their corporate entities set up. If you look at what Latitude is doing in terms of uh, helping startups to be get up and running very quickly by setting up. Um, their onshore and offshore structures, being able to have easy access to legal documents off the shelf that they can use. Um, all of that stuff is, it's, we take it for granted in the US, but down here it's an innovation, right? Uh, being able to open up a bank account for your company or for yourself through an app, it's an innovation, right? Back then you'd have to go and sit at a branch and hope that the bank manager could figure it out in two to three hours. But chances are that you would have to come back to the branch because you were missing some document. <laughs> and so you're always I, missing I, documents in Brazil. You're always missing documents. Yeah. And, and, you know, to put things in perspective, back in 2010, there wasn't such a thing as a startup ecosystem. There weren't many uh, VCs that were investing um, because there just wasn't a, a startup culture. When I left Brazil, Nubank was just getting started. And, you know, when I think back, it's like, man, I, I maybe should have just stayed in Brazil and figured out a way to work at Nubank. <laughs> yeah, I remember I had a friend that was that was very, very early there and visited them when they were in their first building. And it was, you know, 12 people. And now I look back and I should have convinced him to hire me somehow. But, uh, you know, we live and we learn. Can you tell us a little bit about your your founder journey with Sprout and some of the challenges you ran into, even with the better ecosystem that's around, what are some of the things that even as somebody that knew Brazil and had been here a few times that you maybe overlooked or took for granted? Your your co-founder as well was American. So, uh, you know, a, a full foreign founding team. What were some of the things that you you thought you understood about Brazil that you overlooked? Or what are some of the things that, that you got right about Brazil as well? Um, and related to that, what are some pieces of advice you'd offer to other foreign founders like myself? 
Yeah, I think that I always say that Brazil is super exciting because when you land here, you start to experience friction that maybe you take for granted in your home country. But if you have the right lens on, that friction translates to opportunity. And there is so much that needs to be built here. Um, everywhere you look, and, I, and I'm sure that you've seen this in your time here. I mean, you're, you're a builder yourself, right? And our day-to-day -day is surrounded by other builders. It used to be that in the early early days of, of startup in Brazil, it was, well, you, you see something that works in the U.S. or in some other market, and you basically copy that and bring it to Brazil, right? But now you're seeing real innovation in this market. Um, that being said, you know, Brazil is a different place, right? Um, the reason why it doesn't necessarily work to just copy what, what's in the U.S. is because consumer behavior is very different here. The financial infrastructure is different. Taxes are different. I mean, one of the things, this, this didn't necessarily apply to, to my startup, but, you know, we, we have friends in common that are building an e-commerce and they'll tell you that selling across state lines is like selling across country lines, right? In Municipal terms of the lines. tax regiment. Yeah. I mean, if you sell Sao Paulo in and of itself is, is the largest economic engine of the country, right? But if you're selling from Sao Paulo, the municipality to another municipality in, in the interior that has a different tax regime, well, then you just created yourself, you know, several hours of work. <laughs> in terms of um, how you invoice, how you report taxes and whatnot. So it's complicated, right? And I think if you're coming in and, and you don't understand that, you're going to get discouraged. So for me in particular, for SproutFi, you know, all of the challenges that we faced were around consumer behavior, right? Because the models that we were looking at in the US, Europe, in terms of developed markets, and then looking at Africa and Southeast Asia for emerging market examples, you know, we try to apply the best lessons, but the reality is that the level of financial education is different. And so we had to spend a lot more time educating and getting people comfortable around the idea that, yes, they can start investing. They don't need to be wealthy um, and, and to take that first step. Right. And the other very difficult thing was that, as you know, Brazilians have a lot of distrust in the financial system. Right. There's a lot of pyramid schemes and just bad actors in, in the country. Um, I'm sure that is the same as in many other countries. But here, Brazilians have become very ingenious at financial fraud. But also, Brazilians are very distrusting because of a lot of the things that have happened to them in the financial sector. And I like to use my, my parents-in-law as an example. They haven't lived in Brazil for over 30 years. Um, they live in the U.S. today. But when they did live in Brazil, they woke up one day to find that all the money in their bank accounts were gone. And this wasn't unique to them because this happened to the entire population of Brazil. The government decided to freeze everybody's bank accounts and, and in essence, take their money. Right. And so to this day, they're still getting reparations to this day. Think about if that were to happen in a place like the U.S., or any country in the European Union, right? It's, uh, it's insane. But when you think that about the fact that that wasn't that long ago, and that is still fresh in the minds of many of our, of our customers. And so you have to work a lot harder to really gain their trust. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, similar to that are the stories you hear in 
I talk to, um, you know, some of our family friends who are a little bit older and grew up during the inflationary periods and they would tell stories and I've kind of tried to actually encourage it when we're around their kids because their kids don't understand it. They hear, you know, inflation is at 5% and they're worried. But these were people that grew up where the family would all go shopping every week together because Ruben got paid. We're all going to go shopping because if Ruben doesn't spend the money today, it loses its value. And then Isaac gets paid a few days later, everybody's going to go shopping again. And People would shop in groups so that they could maximize the value of the paychecks in terms of the food they take home. And, and again, these are people that, you know, a, a little bit older than ourselves in their you know early 50s or something like that. Um, you know, what you said resonates really strongly with me, where I regularly talk to end users and consumers about their problems. And they're well aware of their problems and they're well aware of things they'd like, but they don't think that there's products for them. And they think that if there's products for them, that somebody's making out on it, somebody's taking advantage, or that it's going to be expensive and usurious. So, uh, you know, insurance is kind of a dirty word with a lot of consumers, which is the space I'm in. And I completely understand where you're coming from with that idea where there's a lot more education and financial solutions. Um, you know, I, I don't want to take too much of your time here. I really appreciate you, you coming on and, and chatting with me about building in Brazil. The expression we always hear as foreigners when we talk to our lawyers and talk to our accountants and everybody else is the name of this podcast, the famous Tom Jobim quote that Brazil is not for beginners. So I'm wondering, you know, what does that mean to you when you hear it? Are there stories that come to mind? Are there experiences that come to mind? Do you brush it off? I laugh. I, I, I like that expression. <laughs> I think Brazil is challenging, but if you come here understanding that it's not going to be an easy journey, but it is going to be a very rewarding journey. And um, the upside of building in Brazil is limitless, right? If you understand that, um, there are ways to navigate, right? And, and Brazilians have this, this saying, which I love, genchinho, right? The little way. There's always a genchinho to get things done. So you just have to be patient and you have to be resourceful, right? And you have to connect with the right people. Because chances are that Brazilians are extremely resourceful because they've always had to deal with a lot of friction in, in their lives one way or the other. So if you stick it out, you're going to find a way to make it happen. And, and you know, we, you and I are, are part of the same WhatsApp group, the uh, expats or gringos in Brazil. And this morning I posted that article about the justice in, in Sao Paulo fining Uber a billion reais and forcing them to register all of their drivers as employees, direct employees. But think about how crazy yeah. that is, right? And, and, and I like what you, your, your response, right? Like chances are that that's not going to go through, right? Uh, that's overreached by a local government and there's precedence that's already been set. It feels like Uber was singled out for whatever reason, um, because as, after I read the, the article, it seems like it doesn't apply to all of the other gig economy apps, um, which is crazy. But, you know, when people look at that, they, they get scared and say, no, this is this is insane. This doesn't happen anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, the local judiciary is really, really powerful. And, you know, one of the things I don't know, have, have you had this experience is their power to freeze the accounts of the beneficial owners of companies. And so sometimes, you know, an executive who has nothing to do with what's going on at the street level, there'll be some sort of process in the judiciary and they'll go out on Friday afternoon to 
take out money and find that their account is frozen because some local judge ruled that they were breaking a law and froze the accounts of the owners. Um, but like you said, there are ways to get around it and people need to be creative in terms of how they do that, in terms of how they think. And, you know, Uber is a great example of, of kind of thinking outside the box in general, but particularly in Brazil. Yeah. And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time advising companies um, and startups that are looking to come down to Brazil or that are exploring the various markets in Latin America. And one of the things that I always tell them, it's, um, you know, it's always tempting to go with the most cost efficient solution, especially if you're a startup, but the cost efficient solution is going to end up costing you multiples down the line. This is a place where it pays to pay legal accounting and financial advice, right? You're, you're smiling as, as I'm saying this because, you know, in, in your industry, the reference for legal is Pinheiro Neto, right? And this is not, not a plug for Pinheiro Neto, but, you know, they're not cheap. But they are the go-to guys in Brazil if you're in fintech or insurance or a startup in general. Because they've been there before. They've seen all of these different scenarios, right? They're going to advise you in a way that's going to prevent the sort of surprises um, that I've personally had, right? I don't know if I share with you that when I first set up um, our local entity in Brazil, you know, we were being cost conscious. And I sort of relied a lot on, on the folks that we had hired, our external um, advisors to, to really know what they were doing. I somehow missed that in the registration forms, they actually put my home address. And you know that that becomes public information. Anyone that looks up the company can find where the company is registered, right? And the law does say that, you know, the director, you know, his uh, identity and here's where he lives or where, you know, primary place of business. Well, long story short, Isaac, after we sold Sproutify a few months later, we, we had a surprise visitor, a disgruntled customer who was not getting serviced by, and, and felt that he needed to um, come on premises, not realizing that where he was actually visiting was my home. And so that was quite a surprise to me. Um, and, you know, it's a small example of like the sort of things that can go wrong. And so it, it pays. This is, the, this is a, a complex place. But if, if you surround yourself with the right resources, with the right people, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I think you hit on some really great points there in terms of some of the little things that coming from abroad, people don't think about. Uh, if I started a business in the U.S., one, it would probably be a lot quicker to get it up and running, but you know, they're not going to list my, my home address, like you said. Here, you know, there's, there's always kind of a duplicity to things in Brazil where there's a Jeitinho on one side and there's doing it right on the other. And the parts that you talked about in terms of accounting, legal advice, where you don't do them right can really come back to get you. And, you know, we have friends and people we know who've been in tough situations or, or thought they were in really bad situations where, um, you know, they got a knock on the door from a regulator or from somebody else thinking that there was going to be trouble. And, you know, in the fintech space, the, the regulator here in Brazil has been really innovative, but in other spaces, they're not. And so really, really great advice for people looking to start companies here or open operations in Brazil? You know, Isaac, in, in my new role, I, I have the opportunity now to work not just in Brazil, but to also 
uh, launch in Mexico, Colombia, Chile, Argentina. I'm fortunate to now be working for a late stage startup that has committed to Latin America in a big way, right? A, a lot of companies, a lot of startups talk about coming to the country um, or coming to the region and investing in the region. But what you end up seeing is that they become helicopters, right? And the minute that something doesn't look right, they take off and go back to their home country. But um, I say this because now that I'm spending a lot of time in Mexico, I'm, I'm really coming to appreciate how innovative the Brazilian financial ecosystem is. And especially Basen, right, our central bank. If you think about what they've done with PIX and in the amount of time that they that got deployed and, and the polarity of like how quickly, you know, PIX has like really taken off, right? And, and how uh, it's just part of everyday life now. It's just sort of, sort of like it's been around forever. And then you look at what's happening in Mexico where the regulators are sort of dragging, they're dragging their ass and um, a lot of uh, really great fintechs and, and founders have found themselves in hot waters because there hasn't been really uh, a lot of leadership from the regulators or the central bank. And so they're sort of being, you know, retroactively penalizing or, or implementing rules and then retroactively, you know, going back and, and, and really hurting the ecosystem. That doesn't happen as much in Brazil. I, I, that has not been my experience here. Right. I think if anything, the regulators, um, the whole sandbox environment or project with the, with the central bank where the central bank says, look, we don't necessarily understand your business model today. But let's put that business model in our sandbox so that we can understand it, right? And, that, and so that together we can figure out what regulations make sense, right? And, and crypto is a, is a perfect example of that. Um, in the U.S., the company that I work for today had to completely do away with crypto. We literally took it from as an offering on our platform and we spun it out to a completely different company that has no ties to what we're doing today. It's crazy. Right. You come yeah. down here and not only is, you know, the central bank supportive, so is central government. So is, you know, the CVM, so it's the exchange and 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 it's creating a condition where crypto startups are going to thrive in this region. And they're coming. They're coming in mass. Right. And it's just not hasn't it hasn't been my experience in other in other countries. Amazing. Ruben, um, you shared a lot of uh, really great nuggets, a, a lot of things that, like I said, I'd, I'd love to go deeper on, but this is a, a short podcast, not not Joe Rogan, so we're not going to spend three hours uh, of your day talking here, but really, really appreciate you coming on, really appreciate your insights. I hope people, you know, like you said, you, you provide a lot of advisory to people looking at Brazil, to startups in Brazil. A lot of people reach out to you and reference you and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and share some of your experience and some of your insights. Thank you for having me, Isaac. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us. This podcast was hosted by me, Isaac Matzner. It was produced by Amanda Villela and edited by Veronica Medina. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on our Substack page. We love feedback, so please feel free to reach out to us on social media or via email at brazil4beginners at gmail.com.